Well, today is the uh, second Sunday of Advent, and uh, generally speaking, the four themes of Advent, the weeks of Advent, are faith, love, hope, and joy, and to get, today we're looking at love. And uh, as the poet once said, love is a many-splendored thing, but it's also a very subjective thing as to what constitutes love, what makes up love. And, uh, and you've heard me probably say before, but in my mother tongue of English, the concept of love when translating it from the New Testament is, is particularly frustrating because we really only have one word in English for love. And we can put other adjectives around it to try and change its meaning. We can say, I love you a lot, or I love you more than, you know, longer than there's been stars up in the heavens. You know, we can add things to it, but we really just kind of have one word. And so in English, it's okay, it's quite possible to say, I love pizza. And I love my wife. And even though these are two radically different forms of love, at least I would hope they would be, it all sounds the same. If someone were to, to translate, you know, if someone, you know, a couple hundred years from now, in English, if English is a dead language, and they found a sermon that I wrote and says, I love pizza and I love my wife, there would be nothing in the word itself that would indicate there's a difference. Whereas Greek, and I'm always hesitant in an international church to, to proclaim something as if I know what I'm talking about, because we have native Greek speakers in our body, but in Greek... Uh, there's several different words for love. Of course, there's the famous three that we talk about, usually when we talk about the things in the Bible, which is agape love, uh, phileo love, and eros love. But then there's also, within the Greek language, other forms of the word uh, which express, express things like a family love, uh, a love for self, flirtatious love, you know, long-standing love, and so forth. But in the New Testament, as I mentioned, the two words that are often, most often used, in fact, eros is really never used, it's really just these two, is the word agape, which is kind of this universal love which knows no conditions. Almost every time when God's love is spoken of, the word agape is used, this universal love that knows no conditions. And then there's another one called phileia or phileo, depending on how people want to try and spell it in English, which really is talking about a deep friendship or brotherly love. For example, in the U.S., the city of Philadelphia literally means the city of brotherly love. It takes this word philea and then adds delphia, and you got Philadelphia. So as we consider this week the love we're talking about, we're going to be talking about God's love. And again, God's love is almost always referred to as agape, meaning this is a love which is present from God toward us, regardless of how we might feel back toward God. And there's lots of scriptures that talk about this, things like, we love because God first loved us. Or God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It's a love that is expressed regardless of what is reflected back to him. One of the most famous verses in the Bible, of course, is John 3.16, and it talks about this kind of love. For God so loved the world, he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. This kind of love, the love there, the word there in the Greek is agape. God loved so much he gave his only begotten son, with no real guarantees from us as to how we would respond to him. You know, he loved because we love because he first loved us. Again, Christ, God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. And so this is that, that form of agape. And I want to look at two passages today, though, which best expressed in my mind 
this love of God. Because you have agape, which is this very high form, and then you have phileo, which is this deep, deep brotherly love, friendship thing. And I want to look at these two, two passages which talk about both these kinds of love because I think together they illustrate very much how God approaches us with love. And so the first one is uh, really talking about this concept of the incarnation. The incarnation, incarnation is kind of a, is theological language. This is Christianese at its higher, higher levels there. It's when the very word of God becomes flesh. John chapter 1, verse 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. And then if you go down to John chapter 1, verse 14, he says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. This is the incarnation. When the very creative expression of God's character and nature dwells among us in the person of Jesus Christ. And if you've been at IBCD for a while, the two passages we're going to look at today are ones that you've probably you've heard me refer to because these are, so, these are very profound and they've meant a lot to me over the years. And the first one is from Philippians chapter 2. So if you're interested in following along your Bible, the first passage we're going to be looking at is Philippians chapter 2. And in this passage, Paul is commending the Philippians for standing firm in their faith in spite of persecution. But he is concerned that they are becoming hard of heart toward the people who are persecuting them. And this is a natural human response, right? When people persecute you, when people are against you, or they make your life difficult, it's hard to respond always with love toward them. And in fact, you can start to become kind of hard towards a particular group of people that you feel are always after you. And the Apostle Paul is commending the Philippians for standing firm in their faith, but he's concerned that they're beginning to grow a resentment towards those for whom Christ died. And so he tells them this. And in this passage, he uses the term agape when he refers to love. He says, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. So in a nutshell, what he's saying to them is, if you have benefited at all from your relationship with Christ, if you have received any kind of comfort from your relationship with Christ, if you've received any kind of benefit from the power of his Holy Spirit in your life, then be of like mind together. Be of the same love together. Be of the same spirit and purpose together. And then he goes on to say, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interest, but also to the interest of others. Then he gets into this theological passage. He says here, Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. But made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. So as we go through this passage, we see here that Paul does a couple things. This is a, a profound passage because it tells us who Christ is and why Christ is. 
who he is and why he is. And in this passage, Paul is careful to use Christ's title first. Whenever Paul uses the, the role of Messiah, he'll often say Christ Jesus. When he's talking about Jesus kind of acting as a, as a person on earth, he'll often do Jesus Christ. And so that's what he does here. He, say, he uses Christ Jesus. And in this, what he's emphasizing is the fact that the role of Messiah for our sake is one which was destined from before the creation of the world. He says this in Ephesians chapter 1, 4 through 6, for, the cho- for he chose us in him, speaking of Jesus, before the creation of the world, to be holy and blameless in this sight. In love, again, agape here, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ and according to his pleasure and will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. Now, this is a deep passage, and we could spend a whole sermon on this, but we're not at the time to. But this is just pointing out that the plan of God for Jesus the Messiah is one that was before creation of the world, which tells us that the fall of man in the Garden of Eden wasn't like some surprise. In the Old Testament, it's kind of interpreted as if, as if it kind of happens outside of God's power, but the New Testament makes it clear to us, no, this is all a plan of God. It's a plan of God to grow humanity into who he wants us to be so that by the end of time, when we are dwelling again with our Father, just like that song we said, uh, you know, is he worthy? Is there going to be a time? Is he going to dwell again with us? Is our God going to dwell again with us? We see that in Revelation. He is, and we will dwell with him, but we'll be free from sin, but we're not going to be the same naive Adam and Eve type people that were in the garden, instead in the city of God, We have an understanding of where sin can take us and an appreciation for God's love. And we have been adopted into Christ. This was the plan of God from the beginning, regardless if we're male or female, slave or free, Jew or Gentile. This is what the Apostle Paul means, is that we are all one in Christ. Because we have the same inheritance. This is back written in the time when sons got the inheritance, not the daughters. So when he says we are all sons, adopted as sons, He's talking to men and women. He's talking to Jews and to Gentiles. He's talking to slaves and he's talking to the free. That in Christ we have this status of inheritance of eternal life. And so then he goes on to say, going back to our our Philippians passage, it's this deep, unconditional love that is expressed in the incarnation. And the incarnation is in the person of Jesus Christ. He says, who being in very nature God, Did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. In other words, he's saying Jesus Christ is the very nature and character of the divine among us. And he doesn't need to grasp at the equality of being God. He already has that. That's the point that he's making. He already has this status, but made himself nothing, taking on the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. Now, we have to be careful here because some of our Uh, Some folks out there, like Jehovah's Witnesses, often will say Jesus Christ is the first creation of God. And that is not understanding very clearly what this is saying. It's true that it was through the Word that all things were created. But the Word made flesh isn't a creation. The Word made flesh is really an expression of self. And it's not he's creating something lower than himself. He's expressing himself in the incarnation. And that's a, a subtle but very important difference. And he takes on this nature and he walks among us. And Colossians reinforces this. It says, For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. 
And you have been given fullness in Christ through his Holy Spirit, who is the head over every power and authority. So this is why in theology speak, we'll often say Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man. He is fully God in the sense that he is the very nature and character of God made flesh dwelling among us. But he's fully man in that according to Hebrews, he could, well, according to the Gospels, we see him, he gets tired. There's times he's hungry. Hebrews tell us that he was tempted but never sinned. And so Jesus really is that word of God entering into his own creation and subjecting himself to his own creation, entering into our weakness, but not entering into our brokenness. And that's an important difference. While Jesus enters into our weakness, he doesn't enter into the brokenness that sin has wrought in the lives of every one of us. And so while he is tempted entering into our weakness, he does not sin. He doesn't enter into our brokenness. Does that make sense? And this is why Jesus is able to carry our sin. He is that perfect lamb that is, that is referred to in the Old Testament over and over again. That perfect lamb, the one without defect. He is then that representation in humanity of that perfect man, the perfect human, without the brokenness of sin, who's like a, you can think of him, he's like a jar or a vessel that has no cracks or no holes, and he can carry the sins of humanity. And in his perfection, he is able then to die for our sake upon the cross and pay for our sins because in his perfection, he then is able to carry the weight of the sins of all humanity. And again, this is, this is reflected back in the Old Testament when you had the scapegoats where they would lay their hand upon the goat and the sins of Israel would be transferred to that goat and one would be set free, the other would be sacrificed. And in the cross, Christ is the sacrifice. We're the ones who get to go free. And so this is the incarnation. And yet he did more than this. And then we talked about this just now. And in appearance, he's found as a man and humbled himself to become obedient to death, even death on a cross. And when we think about who Christ is, then the humiliation of his death is just kind of mind-blowing. That the God of the universe would allow himself to be subjected to his own creation and humiliated by his own creation so that he could redeem his creation. And that's what God did in the name of love. That's who Christ is, the very word of God made flesh, and the why of Christ is to redeem, to enter into his creation and to pay the price himself for the brokenness of his creation. And we are the beneficiaries. We're here today because of what Christ did then. And we, to this day, that power of the cross, that power of the blood still flows into us today. And we celebrated today the, the communion, the brokenness of his body, the shedding of his blood, so that we could be free. And why does he do this? He does it in the name of love. It's a love which desires for us to grow and to mature. And when all things are made new and we are dwelling with God, as we already mentioned, in the, in the end of time, we're not going to be naive and childish, but we will have an understanding as to the terrible price of disobedience towards God's will and the selfishness and of disregard for what he wants for us. And then, the re, the, so then the result of all this is, goes into this, this very powerful statement. It says, Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, 
that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so at the end here, we have this very deep, poetic, and profound expression as the character and nature of God in Christ. And it's a love that is beyond time and beyond space. It's a love that knows no boundaries. Paul in another place says, you know, neither height nor depth, neither angels nor demons, neither uh, heaven or hell, past or present, none of these things can separate us from the love of God that is found in our Lord Jesus Christ. It transcends all things. And it's this model of love that he wants the Philippians to incorporate into their lives, which is why he started out this whole passage by saying, your attitude should be the same of that as Christ Jesus, who was willing to make himself nothing for others, who dwelt among us, who was obedient, even obedient unto death. This is what your attitude should be toward one another and toward the hostile world around you. It is a very profound and high place of love. It is unconditional. It is not affected by time, circumstances, or our own human nature. It's his love, to be honest, it's a love which is hard for us to maintain as human beings. It is hard for us to walk in this high, high place of love all the time. I know I certainly can't, and I doubt any of us can, which brings us to the next passage that speaks of love. And this passage is recorded in the Gospel of John, and it's at the end of the Gospel of John. And Peter, in this story, Peter, who denied knowing Jesus Christ three times, is spoken to by the risen, post-resurrection Christ. And again, if you like to follow along in your Bibles, we're in John chapter 21 in this one. And this is after they went fishing, and Jesus comes along the shore, and someone recognizes him as Jesus, Peter, for some strange reason, puts on his cloak and jumps in the water. And I've always thought that he was trying to walk on the water. Because why else would you put on your cloak to jump in the water? But that's just my speculation. Either that or Peter's just not thinking very straight when he puts on his clothes and jumps in the water. But after they eat, it says this. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter. Now, it's interesting that John refers to him as Simon Peter, but at this point, Peter goes, uh, Jesus goes back to referring to him simply as Simon. Because if you remember, Jesus told Peter that his, Simon, son of John, that his name was going to now be Peter, which means the rock. But the rock had denied Jesus three times. And so when Jesus talks to him here, he only calls him Simon, which is interesting. That's kind of an interesting little insight. But, but John, who's writing the story, refers to him as Peter. The other kind of interesting thing in this whole thing is that Jesus and Peter were probably speaking Aramaic because that was Jesus' kind of, that was the, the local dialect. And it'd be interesting to know if in Aramaic, I don't know enough about Aramaic, if there's the same differences in the word love as there is in Greek. But John, who's the author of this, wanted us to understand clearly that there is something happening here that you can easily read it over it in the English. So it says this, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me more than these? And again, that's an ambiguous question. He's saying, do you love me more than you love the disciples? Or do you love me more than they love me? But either way, Jesus is asking Peter, do you love me unconditionally? Because the word he uses is agape. Do you love me more than these? Agape, God love. And Peter's interesting in his response. He says yes first, 
But then his response is, you know that I love you, but he uses the word phileo. You know that I love you. So he says, like oftentimes we do with God, yes, Lord, but let's modify this thing a little bit. When God says, I want this from your life, yes, Lord, but let's try and do it this way. You know, Peter says, yes, I love you as a brother. Deep affection, phileo, nothing to sneeze at, nothing to say it's worthless. It's the next highest form of love. It's just not agape. It's not what Jesus asked him. So then Jesus asked him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me? Truly love me is kind of the adjective that we're trying to add to love in English to make it sound like agape. He answered, yes, Lord, you know I love you. It's the same thing, agape phileo. Jesus says again to him, take care of my sheep. Then the third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? But this time, instead of using agape, Jesus uses the word phileo. He comes down to where Peter is at. Do you love me deeply and affectionately? And it's interesting here, the scripture says Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. He uses phileo too. And Jesus says to him, feed my sheep or feed my lambs. I find this passage to be deeply touching. It's one of my favorite passages in the scripture. And again, if you've been here for a while, you've heard me talk about this passage. Because I can identify with Peter. You know, Peter was used to making grand proclamations for the Lord. Kind of like I was when I was young. When I was a new believer, man. Grand proclamations made for the Lord. Going to seminars or, or to, to worship meetings, and they do the call, altar call, and you're all there. I surrender all, and you're ready to go. Anything for the Lord. I used to be that. And I think a lot of us were. But then as time goes on, a lot of us can identify with Peter. We can identify with failure in our faith. You know, where Peter had so, you know, proudly told Jesus, these all might turn against you, but I never shall. And Jesus humbled him right there. He said, you know what, Peter, before the crow, cock, crow crows, cock crows three times, you're going to have denied me. And sure enough, he does. He denies Jesus three times. And the scripture tells us that Peter was crushed, that he grieved and you see that even after the resurrection, Peter's response isn't one of a whole lot of joy. He's happy about it. He's kind of freaked out by what's going on. But at the end of the day, he says, I'm going to go back to Galilee. I'm going fishing. Because I think that Peter thought, even though Jesus had risen again, he had no place in the kingdom of God. He had denied Christ three times. He was going fishing. All praise to the kingdom of, the God, kingdom of God, but I know I have no part in it. And so when Jesus comes... And begins to talk to him. He tells him three times, do you love me? Most scholars think, most people think that this is kind of to counteract the three denials. But the other thing that, John, that Peter, I'm sure, is understanding in his head, because he's not stupid, is he understands exactly what Jesus is asking of him. Only now he knows, he has some humility. He's like, I can give you everything I've got. But I'm not making any promises to universal, God-like unconditional love because I made promises before and I broke them. And the hurt I think that Peter feels isn't that Jesus is picking on him by asking him three times, do you love me? 
I think the hurt is that Peter understands this. That once again, Jesus is having to come down to his level and reach out his hand and grab Peter, just like he had to grab him when he began to sink in the water. And just like he's had to, in the past, you know, you know, grab Peter and, and kind of change him around when he said something stupid. And Peter's like, once again, here you are. You want the agape. I can offer you the phileo. And then Jesus basically says, okay. And he steps down to where Peter's at. He says, then let's do that. Let's do the friendship. Let's do the brotherhood. And then Peter says, Lord, you know all things. You know I love you. And for me, these two expressions of God's love really kind of encapsulate the whole personhood of Christ. That you have this extremely high love being expressed. And it's the love that God wants us to have for him and for each other. This unconditional, universal God love that, that can be beaten and yet it still comes back. It can be knocked down, but it still gets up. It can be betrayed, but it still loves. He wants that. But he'll meet us where we can come, where we can, where we can meet him. And it's not too many of us that can go straight from, you know, being kind of selfish in the way we view the world to being a God, having a God-like love in our lives. And so, like he does to Peter, Jesus comes to us and says, do you love me in any way? And when we can say yes, he'll take that. And then if we continue to follow him, it will grow. And I'm convinced that Peter, at the end of his life, could say, without any reservation, that he loved Christ unconditionally. Because he was willing to die for him as a martyr. And you don't die for someone unless you're really bought in with the, who they are and what they're about, and you love them without condition, including the condition of your own life. So as we consider love as expressed in the incarnation, let's never lose appreciation that we do have a God that reaches from perfection and holiness into our failure and brokenness. He made himself nothing, born in humble circumstances to humble people. He lived a humble life, dying a humiliating death. But while he entered into our weakness and he entered into that idea of our brokenness, he himself never was broken. And even though it's hard for us to respond to God with the same kind of overwhelming love that he poured out for us, may we have confidence in knowing that just as he reached down to Peter and said, okay, then love me as a brother, that's good enough for now. May we know that at those times where we feel somewhat less than, that God is still greater than. So when we feel less than in our relationship with God, or we feel less loving, or we feel less devoted, or we feel less committed than we wish we really were, remember that as a follower of Jesus Christ, you are called to the higher understanding of love, but God understands the struggle. He understands it as illustrated in how he deals with Peter. And because of his agape love for us, he meets us where we're at in whatever love we can express for him, knowing that if we will trust him with what we have, like, a, like a, a person with a few, a few coins invests them into, into, into something greater and it grows, like the, the talents 
or like a child comes with just a few loaves and a few fishes, but trust Christ with them, he can make it more. So too, with that love that we can give, if we give it with everything we have, even if it's a love of God, a love for God which is far from his love for you, he will take it and grow it. Just give it to him and get to know him and it'll grow and you will walk closer with God and you will grow in your faith. And Monday, one day, maybe it will be at the end when all things are made new, but at some time, in this life or the next, you'll be able to say into the face of Christ and mean it with every fiber of your being, I love you. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word and we thank you for the depth of your word. And as we celebrate this, this month, kind of the, the incarnation of Christ, Lord, help us to be mindful of your love and Lord, may we check our hearts that we, like the Philippians, it can be said of us to remind us that our attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. And Lord, this is, this is promising to be another difficult Advent season uh, with uh, restrictions and, and divisions, uh, political, spiritual stuff going on all around the world, even within families. But we pray that your love will prevail over all. And that may we as people of hope and light not grow hard-hearted, but may our hearts be soft toward those whom you love, even those who do not know you and even those in their not knowing you actually hate you. May our hearts of love overcome the hate. And we pray for brothers and sisters who are truly in places of persecution, like in the Middle East and in Asia and other places around the world, that they truly are under persecution. They truly are having to face hatred. Hatred in the form of bombs, hatred in the form of beatings, hatred in the form of arrests. And may they love each other and this world around them. And may we, in our place of inconvenience, continue to express our love for one another and for the world around us as well, so that we could be salt and we can be light. And we lift this up to you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.